0: Hello and welcome to Somewhere to Believe In, a new podcast from the people who bring you Greenbelt Festival. I'm Paul and I'm the Creative Director of Greenbelt Festival and I'm one of your hosts for this podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Catherine and I'm your other host for Somewhere to Believe In and the Programme Manager at Greenbelt. If you love very small talk and huge ideas, then this podcast is for you.
0: So hi, Catherine. We've got another episode lined up, and we are going to be talking to the nation's favourite geographer, Danny Dawling. We're going to be talking to him about national identity, COVID-19, Brexit, basically everything.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if the nation has a favourite geographer, but if they did, it would definitely be Danny Dawling.
0: Who was your favourite geographer before you met Danny Dawling, Catherine?
1: Uh, I don't think I know a single other geographer.
0: There was Mr. Davis who taught me when I was about 13 at school and he was very, very neat and he used to draw in feasibly neat diagrams on the board. I can see it now about cumulonimbus clouds and things. But Danny's not that sort of geographer.
1: No, which I learned very quickly when we were going to interview him, that actually geographer doesn't mean somebody that tells you about different parts of the world. he is more of a social geographer.
0: He is indeed. Very sociable, in fact, as you will hear. We're talking and we're recording this, Catherine, and our first episode of the podcast, Somewhere to Believe in, is now live. and People have actually been listening to it, which is quite amazing. And have you had any feedback?
1: Well, I finally got my mum to listen to it because she wasn't really interested in listening to it. And she fed back that I have a weird accent. Apparently it goes, sometimes it goes really posh and then sometimes it goes really black country.
0: It does. I didn't like to say, but your mum is absolutely smack on there.
1: My friend today told me that how am I that funny on a podcast when I'm not very funny in real life?
0: That is unfair. I mean, you make me look good because I am deadly, deadly dull and serious. <laughs> but Chantal, my wife, did give me the ultimate compliment. Uh, she listened to it after a session out in her polyteller one night, and she came in and said, "Yeah, that that sounded like a real podcast."
1: <laughs> what more do you need? I take that. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we've had some good feedback. I've had a lot of people interested in coming to our Greenbelt Island. So that feels like something that could be possible now. There's at least five of us. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's all you need to start a movement. And I think you have started something there, Catherine. And I noticed that there's just been a beautiful island that was being sold on the open market just off Southern Ireland. And I thought we've missed out on that one. But other islands will come up.
1: There's always another island. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there is there is so I mean that's something that our listeners can be looking out for you know anywhere in the globe really have dreams will travel the ways you get in touch with us on all of our social media channels we're at greenbelt festival just at greenbelt on twitter A bit different there and we've got an email address stbi at greenbelt.org.uk so you can get in touch with us there.
1: Oh, we we did have a bit of bad feedback, didn't we, Paul?
0: We did have one email where we were called out for our devilish antichrist behaviour.
1: We get that every now and again. I remember a couple of years ago, somebody just tweeted us, sin. I remember we were trying to work out in the office which one of us had sinned and in what way.
0: It's not so much that it's upsetting. It's you want to know more, don't you? You know, sin. Yeah. OK, tell me more. Tell me more. This could be interesting. You know, because we're always up for learning and we want to listen. And it, when we got the devilish antichrist email, I want to say, what, what is it that we're doing in particular that is causing you such
1: offence? ish devilish.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're not quite full devil, peak devil. Um, we're just ish. So, but the, uh, I think the antichrist thing is always a bit troubling, isn't it?
1: That's not a great one.
0: That's not a great look, uh, not a great sound.
1: It's not what we're going for.
0: So people have been saying what they're going to miss, what's their best bits, their favourite bits. But what about you, Catherine? Have you got a favourite festival moment or too many to mention?
1: Well, I've got I've got a lot, but there's definitely one that stands out for me.
0: Give give me a standout.
1: Uh, Well, that's a couple of years ago where we booked uh, 13 members of Pussy Riot to come to the festival and to be in residence with us. And it was a really weird year because it was the year that there was those poisoning. Do you remember that? When And then they kicked the Russian officials out of UK and they kicked the UK officials out of Russia. And it was very tense for a little while. And then also Pussy Riot stormed the football pitch in the world cup so there was all this stuff building up to our festival and a lot of people this was one of the times when we had a lot of emails coming into the office why would you book pussy riot to a festival where you know you have this links with christianity and to us it totally made sense but you know it was a very divisive choice but as soon as so they performed on our main stage on saturday and me and you were watching Side of Stage, pool, Do you remember?
0: I do. I won't never forget that. And
1: I remember just watching it and just thinking, this is one of the most powerful pieces of art, music, performance, whatever you call it, that I've ever seen. It was just pure protest and passion and everything that the arts could and should do.
0: Yeah, that was a moment. That was a moment. I think that in terms of being involved in programming Greenbelt, that would have to be my festival favourite moment too. More of those, please.
1: What's really interesting, Paul, in these comments is, you know, we have this joke in the office that No one cares about the (laughs) programme. And we say it to each other a lot. And, And partly it's true because actually people come to Greenbelt for the space it's created. Obviously, the venues are normally packed with people listening intently to the musicians and the authors and speakers that are there. But we always talk about the fact that that's not the one and only thing that brings people to the festival. And I think what that allows us to do is to program and platform stuff that might not be really, really well known, but that we feel is coming from a very truthful place. Things that we want to give a platform to, artists that we want to give our money to, our fees to, to support them to keep doing what they're doing. And that's one of the things that I love about Greenbelt.
0: Yeah, there's a real freedom that we have, isn't there? You might think that for a festival that emerges from sort of like a Christian church background uh, in its formation back in the 1970s, you might think that there are all sorts of, um, you know, barriers and frameworks that hold Catherine and I back when we're programming. But actually, I think because of the spirit and the openness of our audience, And the spirit and openness of, you know, the space that we've made over the years. It feels like we have incredible freedom in what we program. And that's a real privilege. So what have we got lined up for this episode?
1: So this week, we're really excited to have Danny Dorling as our guest. We'll be talking to him about inequality, the pandemic, Brexit. I mean, we talk to him about everything, really. We couldn't quite edit this conversation down, so it's a bit of a longer conversation, and so you hear a bit less of me and Paul, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> I think that's really okay. Anyway, where, where are we speaking to you, Danny? Where are you at the moment?
2: I'm in the middle of Oxford. I live, I live in Oxford, so I'm at home. So it's quite funny, all the advantages of, of being in the middle of Oxford aren't here. I should really, <laughs> you know, be on the edge of some mountain in Wales and be far better. But no, I I'm, I'm live in Marston in Oxford.
0: And how's lockdown been for you? How's your work and life been with, with the whole pandemic?
2: Oh, I mean, I'm in some ways quite a selfish, I think, narcissistic person. So I quite liked going and doing talks. I didn't realise how much I liked doing that until it was suddenly all taken away. I had 10 flights that were cancelled. I didn't realise I flew as much. I I kidded myself that I was an environmentalist (laughs) until COVID (laughs) came came along. And I suddenly realised, but I'm incredibly lucky because I've got my partner and three children here. I just couldn't do it on my own. So, you know, it makes you realise, and I've got to know a lot more people on the street, which is the other kind of plus side. But my life has collapsed down to one little street and occasionally leaving it. And That's very strange. Um, mm. uh, but, you know, you can hardly <laughs> you can hardly complain. And it's, it's not all bad. I was clearly trying to do too much. I was clearly flying too much. I was clearly talking too much.
0: If we rewind to the first time that we met you, Danny, you came to Greenbelt Festival last summer on a blazing hot August bank holiday weekend. And you came to talk about lots of different things, but in particular you were talking uh, off the back of a a book that you'd written about Brexit being, in a a sense, one of the last death throes of empire. Uh, And, you know, we loved that talk. There was tons and tons in it. And it just feels like, you know, at that time, Brexit was, was overshadowing everybody's year. Would it? Would we? Wouldn't we? How would we? When would we? And yet the world has feels like it's utterly changed before we listen to the extract though danny do you you know is brexit still there or is it, has it completely gone away you know why we're just not talking about it are we what's happening there
2: <laughs> no we're not talking we will soon when i was talking in that august bank holiday brexit was timed for halloween the bait keeps on moving it was time for halloween then Currently, i think it's around about like halloween again but this this time next this time this year it will matter the brexit Is no longer the biggest thing in town with COVID. But still, if we were to crash out, which the government kind of implies as its plan, then you're immediately looking at increased prices of basic goods and a drop in living standards of people whose living standards have already been decimated repeatedly by by COVID. My personal prediction is that at the very last minute, the government will do a U-turn. They won't call it a U-turn. They'll say they've made a great deal with Europe. And they'll try and lie to the British people. But that's just my you know, <laughs> prediction about what will what will happen. We had a Brexit government. What was put in place by Boris was a cabinet where the key criteria to be a member of cabinet was that you signed up and agreed unequivocally and without thinking to support him to get Brexit done. It's the very worst criteria to create a cabinet and a government to cope with something like COVID. So one of the reasons why Britain has almost certainly dealt with it worse than any other European country is we had a set of people in charge who were not appointed to be able to deal with things like this. In fact, they were appointed. Their qualifying characteristic was not being imaginative, not thinking, taking orders, and just doing what they're told. But it's important to realise before we even got there, we were in a mess. Mm. We had falling life expectancy, as I'll talk about in Europe. We're the only European country that had fallen life expectancy we were the most socially divided country in Europe with not a sense of being together we educated our children separately and lastly behind all of this and this is what Sally and I when we wrote more but the book kept on coming back to is we were a country obsessed with the idea that we were special and that the British empire was a wonderful thing something to be immensely proud of and a sign that we could do things differently to other countries couldn't do we could be the best the best in the world and hence you get this constant refrain of world-class whatever it is nhs app world-class something else and we're saying brexit is part of a process of britain finally realizing that this was complete
3: bunkum and always have been shall we um shall we listen back to that talk now first of all we are the country in europe with the fastest declining living standards The fastest decline in standards of living, most obviously measured by health, but you can measure it in all other kinds of ways. People being sanctioned, the biggest rise of people on the streets. The only European country with the same number of people sleeping rough is Germany. And same proportion. It's not because Germany's bigger. Why does Germany have as many people on the streets as we do? Exactly. Half of them are from Syria. Right. How many did we let in? Nobody. 1.5 million people, Germany let in. Didn't quite manage to house them all, so it ends up with some poor sods living on the streets. We do that to our own. We are quite remarkable. If you measure the gap between rich and poor, and you can measure it in many different ways now, how much the 1% take, what the Gini coefficient is, what the 10 to 10 ratio is, doesn't matter. We are the economically most unequal country in Europe. Why do people between Oxford and Kettering vote for anything but this? Because life isn't good between Oxford and Kettering. Not for most people. They might have a home. Many of them might actually own their home. Remember, these are older people. But their children in their 20s or 30s are renting probably the way things are going for the rest of their lives. That is the predictions at the moment. Their grandchildren, if they do really well and are frugal and work hard, can go to university and amass a debt even bigger than they amassed in the United States of America for the privilege of going to university and then begin to rent from a landlord. Right, The most unequal country in all of Europe, it's not perhaps surprising that people weren't happy in this country. But lastly, and what I'm going to end on, we were different from all the other European countries. We had been number one in the world, just a hundred years ago. We were the richest. We had the highest living standards. Even for our poorest, they lived longer. When I was born in 1968, we had the lowest infant mortality in the world because we had baby incubators and nobody else had them. We were at the top. When I was 15, my school did a trip to France. And we got 10 francs to the pound. There are other people in my age who can remember. 10 francs to the pound. I was 15 years old. I had a pound. A bottle of wine was 3 francs. Right, 10 francs to the pound. We lived the life of kings. And now it's one to one, in effect, if you try to go away this summer and falling. Why were we so rich? Why did we have the best health service? Why were things so good? It is not unrelated to the fact that we owned more of the world than anybody ever has. It was the British Empire. That is what made us rich. The problem is that we didn't tell ourselves that. We told ourselves that running the largest empire the world has ever known was some kind of gift we did. It was an act of benevolence. We brought civilisations to people. We carried on teaching this, and when we stopped teaching this, we didn't begin to teach the alternative. Gordon Brown, the former prime minister, has pointed out that we invaded, I think, almost, I think it could be over 180 of the countries that are now the 193 members of the United Nations. We invaded almost everywhere. Nobody asked us. You know, we did one treaty in New Zealand because they were particularly good at fighting back. But really, we took over. Every child in China is taught about the history of China and why it is as it is. And they're all taught about how Palmerston's boats turned up. And when the Chinese wouldn't buy the opium that we were trying to sell them that we were growing in India because we owned India, we shelled them through a place called Hong Kong and opened up China to opium and destroyed it. Every Chinese child is taught that. Not a single child in a school in England is taught any of this. But we became rich, really rich. And our industry did well. Because our colonies had to buy from us, there was imperial preference. And it didn't all go when the colonies went. They went mostly in the 60s and a few in the 70s. But the advantage that we have carried on for a little bit. But then it slowed down because you could buy better ships that were cheaper than the ones made on the Tyne. And you could buy better cars than the ones that were made in Cowley. And you could bank with somebody who wasn't going to rip you off quite as much as the bankers in London. And we had to do something about it. And one thing we did about it was we liberalised the city of London. We said, hey, you can do what the hell you like. It was called the Big Bang in 1986. And for a time it worked. Money flooded into the country. Some of it trickled down and out. Inequality rose, but it kind of worked until 2008, when that Ponzi scheme fell apart. And then we're suddenly left with ourselves, no longer with the advantage of what we once had from being the richest and most powerful nation in the world. And we turn around and we say, oh, Germany won't agree with us leaving. They'll come to a deal because they sell one in ten of their cars to us. So they'll want to stay. We're closing down the car plant in Swindon. We're closing down the one at Ellesmere Port. The one two miles from my house is mainly made up of 1,200 robots, each one of which fits in the back of an articulated lorry. It can be moved in two weeks, the BMW plant at Oxford to the Austrian-Czech border. We're producing less cars now than we were. We're still going to be buying 10% of Germany's cars in future. It's just we'll be paying a tariff on them, and they'll be the smaller ones. And that's really good, because it's good for the environment. Right? And there are lots of plus sides to this. If we look after each other as we go through whatever it is, I personally don't think we're going to leave on the 31st. I don't think we're going to sort this out for a decade. I think it's going to be painful, agonizing, embarrassing. We're going to learn just how civilized our European neighbors are as we do it, just how tolerant they are. When the Irish said they'd send food if there was a problem, they actually meant it. It's quite humbling to realize nobody has taken, nobody has taken the Mickey out of us. And you will understand the arrogance of that phrase. The first colony, of course, was Ireland. Uh, that we had. We're going to grow up. It's always difficult when you're at the heart of a former empire. Every large empire in the world has not come out of it well for a century after the end of empire. This is what we're going to have to go through now. It's a learning process. It's going to be tricky. We can deal with it simply by looking after each other, whatever happens. If it is a knife-edge Brexit on the, on Halloween, then you have to worry about your neighbours. You have to worry about getting more food to the food banks. You have to worry about who needs insulin. And you particularly, above all else, have to worry about your friends who are not born here and the racism which has increased in the last few years to them. If we come to some kind of deal or a Norway arrangement, there won't be happiness. There will be people who claim it was betrayal of Empire 2.0 to the day they die. And again, that's going to require kindness. There will be people who will never agree with you, no matter what your stance is over this. Because there are no winners from coming down, from being top. Unless you accept that becoming a normal European country Is actually something to be. We should try to be somewhere where our children can go to school and university for free. Private education largely doesn't exist on the continent. Their children mix with each other. We should try to be somewhere where the health service is properly funded. On the side of that bus, it should have read 1 billion euros. Because in Germany, they spend a billion euros, to be precise, 1,050 million euros every week extra on their health services as opposed to what we do. And that's not because they've got more people. France spends more. France has far more doctors per head. We spend the least of any rich European country on our health. We can, we can aspire to be somewhere that's normal. We can aspire to at least spend a European average on our health care. But we can't do that and still buy aircraft carriers, and swan around the world pretending we are what we no longer are. We've got a choice, and the choice is, do we move quickly to becoming normal, or do we take a long and painful time over it while we let Jacob rees Moggs try to play a billionaire's game of gambling to make this the offshore tax haven island, thinking that they will not notice what we are doing just over the channel. My worry is that I'll be dead before we sort this out. I would like to spend my pensionable age in a country that finally has come to realize that it isn't special. There's not a reason why we should be number one or number two in the world. We're not going to be the fifth largest economy for much longer anyway. And it can all be a much better place without all of that.
1: Do you think that this pandemic will alter people's mindset and how we should treat each other? Do you think that this pandemic, we might come out of it being a bit kinder, having known our neighbours a bit more, having to come together with a common enemy?
2: In terms of fast up and down pandemics, we've had four previous ones in the last century, we have 1918, 1951, 57, and 1968-69. All of those previous ones, which all have a higher death rate instantly just in covid 51 may not be quite as high they came and went so quickly and we didn't know what was happening that they didn't create a sense of solidarity I mean in the most ridiculous one I think it was 1957 the Prime Minister Harold Macmillan during the peak of the 1957 flu pandemic said you've never had it so good to the British people and they believed him right? which gives, 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 gives you an idea of the huge difference now 24 hour news release of information, testing, serology. The 1951 pandemic may not have been entirely flu, it might actually have been an, uh, an earlier COVID It's one thing we're discovering now. So sorry, to, to try to get to your question. This one is different because of how we reacted to it, because we shut everything down, because we decided that it was not tolerable to have one in 300 people dying, which in the past we would have tolerated, particularly if they were elderly. Because of that, because of the shutdown, we then get the sense of solidarity. We then get the sense that the NHS is really important because we are literally going to try and keep as many people alive as we can, which we didn't do before. We're going to try and get it down to a rate where the ITU beds do not fill up entirely. Because of the shutdown, we suddenly really valued people who were still serving behind counters. That realisation, having it spelled out, who was a key worker and who wasn't, who was essential? You know, I am not essential. Uh, I cannot get into my workplace. I can, if I argue very nicely, they let me in once a month to pick up my post, but that's it. Uh, the world can carry on largely without me or with me electronically like this. But my city is from the people who are absolutely essential, who have to be in contact with other, other people. Uh, I don't think we're going to completely forget that. But also... We're more educated now, much more educated than we were. Because in the last fast up and down pandemic, 1968, most people were leaving school at, what, 14, 15? Didn't know very much about maths at all. This is now a literate able population who can understand the nuances of what a deputy director of medicine says when he doesn't say, when he's clearly annoyed with the minister on a briefing at four o'clock in the afternoon on the BBC. We are much more engaged with our politicians now than we were before. We have a sense what Dominic Cummings was doing when he ran as far as possible away from London, which looked like it was possibly in an absolutely dire situation at that point, to somewhere with one of the lowest rates of COVID in the country. You know, we're not stupid anymore. In the way that we kind of have been in the past, simply because of our industrial and our education system, where we just thought the doctor knows best, and will tell us what to
0: what to do. As a geographer, Danny, you know you've got this grasp of statistics and figures, which I find really helpful, compelling, um, and it, that seems to feed in when I hear you, when I listen to you speak and when you spoke at Greenbelt. And again, now it feels like you're hopeful. But, I, yeah. you know, I, there is a way that all those statistics and the way that we've dealt with it could make you go the other way. But it seems, I don't know, are we right? It seems like um, you, you're optimistic, you're hopeful. There seems to be a progress that's at play here, possibly. Oh, no, I'm hopeful about
2: every Tuesday at 10.30, I download the numbers from o The really good numbers come out at Tuesday on 10.30. I'm hopeful. So the UK, or particularly England, has the worst record in Europe. Belgium is bad, but it came quickly and they're very dense. They didn't do anything particularly wrong. However, since it peaked, which is the 7th or 8th of April, it has been steadily going down. With numerous scares of, oh, it might be going up in the southwest or this or that, which shows you a kind of high degree of surveillance we're the worst country in europe but, but we are currently only three or four weeks behind spain and italy where you know spain is open now and we're on track we're on track to be in that position so the nice hopeful thing is we are nowhere like a, a state of the united states of america where they have it's going up there it's out of control we are actually as far as this disease concerns european and in europe it is dropping absolutely everywhere a track and trace system it's not that hard to do. Okay, our country's making more of a mess of it than anybody else, but you know, track and trace systems exist all over the world. They're working brilliantly in many countries in Africa right now. You know, it, it is really not a high skilled thing. And the lower the numbers get, and they're dropping. I think as we speak, about one in 20,000 people have this. You know, you, you'd have to really work very hard to catch it today if you wanted to. And it, it's dropping. Once you've got track and trace in, you can keep it under control. I do worry about flights, large number of flights in the autumn, but I do think this is not going to come back here because it is not that hard to control it. The second peaks in the past, the one from 1918, we have no idea about second peaks and the second peaks from the 1968-69 flu were actually late 1970 and 72, the third peak. And they weren't known. We know not all about, we're almost like know too much about second peaks now. We're going to have second peak paranoia. As long as you're keeping an eye out, as long as you're testing, as long as you come down like a ton of bricks on a packing factory in Anglesey, the minute you see something go wrong, then people will still be more likely to die of 20 other causes than this. You know, and school children will be more likely to die by being hit by lightning, let alone a car. And, that's, so I am hopeful about this disease, even without a vaccine, in a highly paranoid, well-controlled European setting. I'm not hopeful for the United States. I'm not hopeful for South America. I'm less worried about other parts of the world because it so massively hits elderly people. It's something like you're 10,000 times more likely over 80 to... and. <laughs> because there are so few very elderly people in much of the rest of the world, it may not be quite as devastating as as we think it it could be in, say, Pakistan and India. You know, on the scale of pandemics, you've got to remember, I've been talking about the sh- the shorts up and down ones, and this is relatively small for that, but of course, AIDS is a far bigger pandemic. Far more people will die this year of AIDS in the world. TB is bigger. COVID is, is, is a disease which particularly hit politicians, sports people, business people and tourists, and the upper middle class. And that's why it got the kind of attention it did. And I'm grateful we did deal with it the way we did, but we wouldn't have if it had been the poor. Uh, The last time we've seen this kind of reaction to the disease was cholera in the 1840s, when people had no idea about what the mechanism was by by where you could get cholera. They didn't know it was water. And the middle class and the upper classes were absolutely petrified. And so they built sewer systems in London, eventually. The disease will come and go. And there's something very odd about this one. We will find out ways of treating it. We We will probably develop a vaccine. And if we don't develop a vaccine, we will find a way of controlling it down to a low level. So there are other things worth worrying about. So the problem with the other things worth worrying about is, as soon as you mention them, you make people paranoid about those. So I don't mm-hmm. want to tell you the most likely ways in which you are likely to die, but I can tell no, you. Right let's now. keep it
1: on a high note. This you, you've been know. you've been the most hopeful person that I've spoken to in the. Last okay, three we, 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 <laughs> we won't do
2: that. those anyway, so, so, like so, 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 if you're under twenty-five, just worry about crossing the road. You know, massively more dangerous than COVID.
1: That's great, Danny. I vote that you go and take over um, Boris's daily updates. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah they need to bring yeah. you in on the stage
3: Yeah no the problem with the daily
2: updates Is they need people to be Scared
1: terrifying. So, yeah.
2: so they don't tell people the, the good news because they want People not to Although they, they do stupid things like Tell people now you can go out in the countryside And have a barbecue So we've had an unprecedented number of fires Now in the countryside <laughs> Ports, <laughs> Yeah yeah, they should have just said go to the countryside and take a picnic,
0: you know. <laughs> anyway. So yeah. uh, D- Danny obviously, you know, the the pandemic swept into our consciousness, our news agenda, obviously our uh, our real life. Um since you were with us at Green Bay. it's changed everything in a sense. In your talk though, you were talking about the fact that, you know, we as Britain, um Wrestling with this idea, this—I think you talked about—you know—feeling this feeling of specialness, as if we are like, you know, the, the special one, you know, the where the Jose Mourinho equivalent to to the global community, and you you carefully knit that together with our history of empire, and again, such a lot currently is playing into the our consciousness around realizing. That we were and uh, were and still act in some senses as an empire power and all that that means. And I just wondered what your reflections are around that because that seems to be, along with the pandemic, obviously since the murder of George Floyd, that has played out incredibly into our consciousness um, and and learning what it means to have to to be the empire power.
2: It's it's interesting, isn't it? The coincidence. I mean, it sounds very political, but to have had four years of a Brexit arguing administration where the fundamental argument behind them was make Britain great again, we are destined to rule the waves, Empire 2.0, we're shackled and held back by being part of this European club, there's something different about us because our grandfathers were ruling the waves. You know, for young people to have listened to that for four years, Mm. To be told they're being choked out of Europe and then watch their bumbling inability to cope with a pandemic, which has been predicted for a century. You know, it's not it's not as if this wasn't number one on the risk register. It's not as if we hadn't had an exercise two years ago of what are we going to do when this happens. Um yeah, it it's that sense that sense of realizing that your betters are not better, that those in charge don't know what they're doing, they're ruled by an ideology which is false and stupid and causes them to make mistakes.
1: Do you think there's any benefit in that kind of ego that we have as a country, or is it, or are the effects of that all negative?
2: It's tricky. I try. I try to look back with Sally at other past empires on the way down to sort of say, well. Was there a benefit to the Dutch? of You know, when Amsterdam was the richest place in Europe, I mean, now the Dutch do pretty well, and it was kind of, you know, but they, they've they learnt not to be boast about the fact that they had a golden age. But in general, in general, empires coming down don't tend to have a particular kind of advantage. You can go right back to the Roman Empire and say, you know, well, did it help them 300 years after the height of it? It is entirely possible for us to create a much-improved, country that's kinder and looks after people but just not on the basis of the idea that allowing a few people to lead and become richer and richer is the way to do it and you've got to finally accept your history and and what it was about you know the industrial revolution was paid for on the back of plantations in the caribbean whereas at school we were just taught it was the ingenuity of our inventors and nobody nobody said where the money came from and it's a it's a half it's a one generation thing we shouldn't beat ourselves up about it also because it's what happens if you don't lose wars if you lose a war your history is rapidly updated to something that's much more honest if you go to Germany and you look, look in Germany for the monuments to the warriors and the great leaders and the statues of men you won't find them in Germany and that isn't because the Germans skillfully connived to lose that war but they, they lost that war and then they got an honest version of their history we haven't and so we have this little england history but in england you know wales is much better look at statues in wales they're mostly of clerics it's quite quite interesting quite sort of subconscious and i i'm optimistic about all this i i do think we'll come out of it far better but a lot of what we were doing wasn't sustainable and it's made it starkly obvious it wasn't sustainable.
0: And that, Danny, that point about, um, you know, things just weren't sustainable. Your your most recent book that you've been working on, I, d- I don't know what you knew that no one else did, but it's called Slowdown. And, it, you know, it, it seems like a prophecy. I don't know. Obviously, I haven't read the, the book itself. But what what was that about? Was it about confronting uh, a whole bunch of stuff which just felt to be breaking under its own weight, unless we unless we changed and we dialed things back somehow.
2: That slowdown book was written because I measured a whole series of things like GDP growth and noticed that they have been slowing for decades. And we have we talk about things speeding up, but actually, population, economic growth, innovation—when you measure it, the rate of change was slowing compared to the rate of change that our parents and grandparents saw which was acceleration. And I actually have a bit in the book. The only thing I am proud about in the book is I have a section on pandemics where I talk about 1918, GDP fell by 14%, and it rose by 16 the next year. That's your V-shaped graph.
1: Hmm.
2: And the 51, 57, and 68. All of those pandemics came at a time when the economy was not just growing, but accelerating. When population wasn't just growing, but it was accelerating. We have more and more young people. And one of the reasons why we could just let those pandemics happen, or we kind of had to, is that the force of movement forward was so fast anyway. I mean, you think about 1968, there was the Vietnam War, there was the demonstrations, there was loads more going on. You know, a flu pandemic in in October, November that killed 100,000 people in America, well, that was just one more thing that happened in 1968. It didn't define it. This pandemic hit at a point... When we were already entering a global economic recession, when GDP had been slowing for decades anyway, when population growth was so slow that in Korea they were having less than one child, less than one child per couple, when well, you had a sort of sense that everything was coming to a halt. Apart from, I've got to tell you this: four things. The four things that were not slowing down that I measured were the number of air flights in the world, how many, how many people were flying that was accelerating. Right. The number of university graduates was accelerating. Our carbon dioxide emissions were accelerating and global temperatures accelerating. And ironically, with COVID-19, all of those four, suddenly the brakes have just gone on.
1: Mm. And this slowing down is, is, I mean, we always think that when GDP starts to slow down, that's a, that's a bad thing because we're kind of addicted to that growth. But actually, that could be a positive thing. We could turn that into a positive thing
2: oh we could we could we could you know what what we need and the pandemic has helped from this you need security Mm. you need not to live in fear health matters more than anything else your loved one matters friends and relatives and being able to spend a bit of time with them really matters being able to buy more clothes really doesn't matter you know haircuts are nice but not the end of the world i would forget any holiday will do you don't have to fly no no, this is the thing about gdp you know, and it's easier for sort of relatively well off to say we can have less. twenty mm. percent uh, of us in Britain have watched our bank accounts grow because we haven't been able to spend, which is partly how you get to the recession, because people don't, don't spend. But it's much it's much easier to spend less as long as everybody else is doing it as well. So so the the old arguments about it's okay if GDP falls, it only works if it's easily kind of spread. You know, if we really do decide we are going to fly less in the future, and it will be when it's absolutely essential, uh, not because we quite fancy going to Milan. You can get to Milan on the train; it takes a bit longer, so what? And also deciding, you know, how much material goods do you need, particularly when you're sitting with them all and you can't actually use many of them. And I'm optimistic that we're looking possibly towards a more secure, less precarious, happy, more equal world it just doesn't just happen by itself you've got to kind of demand it but coming back to those statues there suddenly comes a time when you can demand something Mm. and in the case of Oxford all that happened was that twice 700 people marched and stood underneath the statue quite a lot of emails were sent in private there was quite a lot of anger and a group of old white men largely said okay the statue goes you know and That effort this time worked. Uh, Whenever anything gets better, it's because somebody bothered to try to push for it. Yeah, People have to know it's possible. So I think you need the optimism to think this can absolutely happen. But you've also got to go out of your way and push for something. Sometimes at a time when it's painful or embarrassing or you're thinking, can I be bothered to do that?
1: Do you think that people understand the effect that inequality has on everybody? Or do you think it's only a concern for a portion of our society?
2: I think it's a complicated concept because it's about a gap. So I think people don't get it. They don't realise how much of the fear of the very well off is is caused by inequality because they've been put so far up. You know, the fear of their children going to a normal school, it's palpable. Mm. The, the, The fear of my children might have to attend a state school, which 93% of other children attend. You know, people do not spend £30,000 a year on a top-end private school, avoiding that just because they have the disposable income, right? They, they're actually really, really frightened. So inequality has huge effects at the top end. It affects who people can love, who they can marry, what kind of work they can do, what kind of income they think is acceptable, where they can live in a town. Do they socialise with, you see a great deal, I see a great deal more happiness and calmness in Japan and Scandinavia. Those times when I could travel there quite easily. And in the USA, oh boy, do you see fear in the USA.
1: Yeah.
2: People behind gated communities who never go to the other part of town. And what, what are you getting for your money? Their incomes in the USA will be twice the income of somebody in the same job in Japan or in Sweden but you can just see the fear etched on their faces. You can actually compare to the calmness. And I I go on about this because it should be such an easy win. You know, the well-off are not that happy in unequal countries. The well-off in more equal countries, immensely calm is is my, my impression of them. Just slightly smug. I mainly talk to ones who know about other countries being unequal. And they kind of sit back because they're well off where they live. But also, they don't have to worry about things like crime in their country because it's so low. They know, in the case of Finland, that less than 100 babies die in a year, the lowest infant mortality rate in the world. So it's just a sense of achievement, which, in an unequal country, do you get the same sort of sense of achievement by buying yourself a really expensive car for £100,000? <laughs> what kind of... <laughs> You know, it's just it's just wrong and silly and childish and short-term gratification.
0: And Danny, we're approaching the end of our time uh, together. Do you, well, I mean, we're making this podcast. We've never done one before, but we're hoping that greenbelters will listen in, and they might get some inspiration and some hints and tips about how they can be part of this, this new, you know, future—a uh, hopeful future. Have you got any? Where would you point people to? Books, films, uh, websites, people to follow? And, and in terms of, you know, our own personal life, what, what are the sorts of things that we can be doing, do you think, that would uh, help us to, to create this consensus around a more equal society for the future that would be more hopeful and, and safer and happier for all of us?
2: I talk to younger people more. Uh, one thing I've disturbingly found about myself in the last few months I'm 52, is kind of how conservative I am. This has been meetings at work and so on, which of course are all now done on the screen like this. And I've suddenly found younger people, whenever we have a vote, and we have more votes now, being more radical than me. And this is in the University of Oxford. And I've heard this comment from other people of my age and a bit older about their children teaching them history lessons and things. So... And it's optimistically well, What I hope is that I haven't suddenly become kind of more boring and conservative. It's actually that there is this movement uh, underway amongst younger people and they're moving forward faster. But I I would look for things that that younger generation listened to. I, I want to try to avoid what the generation two above me did when they couldn't understand the children of the 60s. You know, if we're going to get a new set of children of the 60s coming through, uh, I don't want to be that old boring fart who doesn't quite get what it is that they're going on about and who says, oh, you're going over the top. Uh, Because we just have to remember, in the past, the youngsters have tended to always be right. Uh, So that's why I'd look.
1: Do you have an Instagram, Danny?
2: I'm not on Instagram. You got me on my age. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not on, I'm not on Instagram. Uh, I've got a website. I've got a website with lo- loads of um, text and pictures on it. Uh, so just www.dannydawling.org. And I can do Facebook and Twitter. I just felt too old to do Instagram. So, uh, maybe I should.
1: Maybe you should. <laughs> Great. And we can put all those links on our website so people can, um, can look at what we've been talking about today.
0: As a geographer, Danny, as well, I think you should do a a piece of work on festivals, you know, all the what's going on there, the statistics, the psychology, you know, there's there must be tons of interesting stuff for a geographer.
2: I should and how they're all coping because I'm supposed to be at Edinburgh, I'm supposed to be at Hay, you know, it's quite a big part of my life. I don't see lots of other people, you know, but but for the organisers, you know, and no insurance,
0: certainly your insurance, no. No. Yeah. Anyway. See you soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, Danny. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 So once again, a fascinating guest, a really fascinating conversation.
1: I've started to realise how little I know about the British Empire, how little history has been taught to me.
0: It's a real awakening, isn't it, amongst us all here in Britain about just how selective the way that we've learnt our history is. There's huge missing bits.
1: Yeah, and it's affected so many things that we're still going through today. Like, Danny was talking about that we are, as a country, obsessed with this idea that we're special. And even though we are, I think he says, we're the only European country that has a falling life expectancy, and that we don't spend anywhere near the amount that the other rich European countries spend on their NHS, but for some reason we still have this idea that we are special,
0: Yeah. And I think that special thing is a really key thing to think about and reflect about right now, because thinking you're special isn't very far away from you starting to get into treating other people like they're not special, I guess. And it feels like the more that we learn about our history, particularly our colonial history, is we do seem to have done an incredible amount of damage around the world by treating people as less special than we think we are. And I guess that's, you know, we're reaping the whirlwind with that now and we'll continue to do so, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's shocking to me that we can't just own up to that. You know, the amount of harm that we've caused globally in our history, that we can't own up to that and start to try and rectify it or at least make sure that that doesn't happen again in some way. It just feels like we're just going, never mind about that.
0: So the worry is, isn't it, I guess, Catherine, that not only might we not be learning the lessons, we might be wanting to almost turn back the clock. And that, that feels pretty painful. You know, Even if we come out of Europe, we don't have to then go around the world or act as if we're this, you know, God's gift to the world and we're special all the time.
1: What makes a country special? To me, ideally, what would make my country special is if there was equality If that equality wasn't getting worse, that people had secure housing, that we were not trashing our planet, but find ways to restore our planet, that we were all getting good, nutritious food on our plates. That's what, to me, would make a country really special. But that doesn't even seem to be on the agenda. Even though the countries that are more progressive in those areas, the countries that are more equal, and people seem to be happier, those countries are the ones that are thriving. So it's not just about loving each other and, and you know, it's not fluffy, lefty, liberal ideas. It's actually ideas that are proven to have a successful economy, to have a successful community, to have a successful nation.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I think that that's that's the thing, isn't it? The evidence bears that out. And rather than living in fear of the other, you know, and wanting to protect what you have, there's much more of a sense of shared pride in, hey, look at this country that we're making together where infant mortality is absolutely zero almost, or where people are living longer, where people are living with much less mental health issues and much less stress. Look at this country we're making together. I'd feel proud about being part of an enterprise like that, I think.
1: people think that inequality doesn't affect them? Because that's something that I picked up on in Danny's talk and I found really interesting, is this notion that inequality affects everybody. Because it kind of causes everybody to live in fear.
0: Yeah, it's, it's quite stark, isn't it? I don't know. Have you seen the film Bowling for Columbine by Michael Moore, Catherine?
1: Yeah, I remember watching that years ago.
0: Yeah, it's really, really old now. But there was one little section of that that's always stayed with me. And I can't remember the detail, but it's a. He makes a little journey along the border between the US and Canada. And he just draws really, really incredibly sharp contrasts between how people are living on the Canadian side of the border compared to how they're living on the United States side of the border. So these are people living within sometimes half a mile of one another, some with their doors unlocked, some with their doors locked and barricaded and on estates with big gates and security guards, and so on and so forth. And there is, yeah, it's just, it's funny, this, um, this global capitalist mentality or, or economic model, which we think is the only one, Uh, Seems to breed such discontent. I really, really hope, I guess, that out of this pandemic, as we emerge, we might rebuild something that looks different.
1: Yeah, you've got to be hopeful. But listen, Danny also said that you have to demand an equal world and you have to go out of your way to push for change. And that's when change happens. That's historically when change has happened. And change has happened in massive ways over hundreds of years. And that's only normally done when people stand up and go, enough, we demand this now. And of course, there's lots of different ways that you can do that. And we'll be exploring some of those next week with Sarah Corbett.
0: Yeah. So we'll be talking to Sarah, who is perhaps one of the best sort of campaigners and activists that we've ever had speak at Greenbelt about her life and work. That's going to be really fascinating. I really liked Danny's optimism, didn't you? Uh, Because I thought that, you know, given all those statistics that he's working with and given the fact that he gets all the government reports that come out, I thought that he might be feeling a bit down. But he actually sounded quite
1: optimistic. Yeah, optimistic and logical, which I like. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Somewhere to Believe In and we'd also love to know what you think. So remember to let us know your favourite Greenbelt moments plus anything that you've picked up in the podcast that you want to talk to us about a little bit more. And we've got some ways that people can get in touch with us. What are those, Paul?
0: Well, on our social media channels, we are at Greenbelt Festival on Instagram and Facebook, and we are at Greenbelt on Twitter. So that's one way out and about on our socials. But you can also email us directly. We've got a dedicated email address to pick up comments from this podcast, and it's stbi at greenbelt.org.uk, stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. For all those of you on our dispatches email list we have emailed out to let you know that if you want to get notifications about each episode as it drops and a bit more information about what to expect you can sign up to a dedicated mailing list where you can find out all about the somewhere to believe in podcast just go to our podcast page on the website for more details of how to do that
1: hopefully you'll be back with us for next week's episode when we'll be talking to Sarah Corbett about gentle activism and protest
0: So that's it from us for another week. Um, It's been really fun, hasn't it, Catherine?
1: Yeah, I love this. We should do this every week. Every week? Thank you very much to our guest Danny Dorling for talking to us and to Daisy Ware-Jarrett for producing us and making this all happen and thanks to Paul Truman on our staff team as well.
0: We'd also like to say a big thank you to Lee Baines of Lee Baines Third and The Glory Fires for letting us use his amazing track I Can Change for the theme tune on our podcasts and also to Kat and Josh on our Recorded Talks volunteer team for making us sound good by editing us so well. you can listen to all of our recorded talks archive free online on our website this summer. If you just go to greenbelt.org.uk slash talks, everything's there. Probably more than 1,500 individual talks. You can browse by subject and by speaker and by year. Just dig in because there's a real treasure trove waiting there to be explored.